Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Claire. I'm an ordinand, which means that I am training for ordination. It is so good to be back here with you, basking in that Easter glow. We have survived through Lent. As a congregation and a church, we've negotiated our way through the Book of Lamentations, and now we can rejoice in the resurrection. Alleluia! And so we can. But, nonetheless, the title that Simon gave for today's sermon is Why Are You Crying? It seems we may still have a little more hard soul work to do. Our passage today comes, of course, from the start of that very first Easter morning. Just before our passage, Mary Magdalene has come to the tomb and she's found the stone rolled away. So she runs to go and get Peter and John. They establish first that Jesus' body has disappeared. And so, and so they very bravely and courageously run away. Something odd and totally unexpected has happened. Jesus' followers were already terrified that the authorities would be after them next. And now this, the final desecration, but also a frightening twist in the tale. It's understandable that they ran back to their houses and locked the doors. But Mary stayed where she was. Maybe Mary, as a woman, felt less in danger of being arrested than the men did. Maybe she had already suffered so much abuse and contempt earlier in her life that a final indignity didn't matter much. Maybe her love for Jesus or the despair that she was feeling were more all-consuming. Whatever the reason, Mary stayed and she wept. I think we can all easily understand that weeping, can't we? In addition to all the same fears that the other disciples had, Mary had stayed throughout the crucifixion. She had witnessed Jesus' horrific suffering on the cross. She had lost the man she most admired, the one she had believed might have been really special, maybe even the Messiah. And now it was all gone. Everything that had made life worth living for her, this new miraculous life she'd experienced with Jesus, gone. All those hopes and dreams of a life renewed by the power of the Messiah, gone. Even the body had gone. It was the final indignity, the final insult. So let's just spend a moment with Mary outside the tomb. Imagine yourself into that place. Call to mind all the things which might cause you to cry here and now. And feel free to bring into that space any you know who have reached a point of despair. And let's just take a moment to be with Mary in that space. Well, at this point, we might expect her to turn sadly toward home, just like Peter and John. But she still did not go home. Instead, she turned and had one final look inside that empty tomb. What prompted her to do that? Maybe she was looking to have one final goodbye. But 
It suggests she hadn't quite given up all hope. Did she think she might find a clue as to what had happened? Or maybe she would find the body there after all? It seems she did still have a shred of hope left. And there she found, well, not a body, but a couple of angels. Peter and John didn't see the angels when they looked in. Maybe they weren't there then. Maybe you only see angels when you take a bit of time or when you've reached the point of despair that Mary had reached, or when you allow that shred of hope to burn inside you. We'll never know, but the appearance of the angels would seem to be a clear sign that God has been at work here. Something amazing must have happened, and yet Mary doesn't seem to notice. She's too set on her need to find Jesus's body. The angels ask her why she's crying, We've just spent time in the many reasons Mary had to be crying, but let's pause for a moment and see it from the angel's perspective. Mary saw the empty tomb as a further reason for despair. Not only had Jesus been crucified and all her hopes and expectations of life with him been dashed, but someone had even come and stolen the body. Tears seem a natural, expected reaction. But of course, for the angels, Tears of sorrow are the very last reaction to the empty tomb. For them, the tomb is a place of pure joy, pure triumph, not sorrow. It's a complete clash of worldviews. Mary's conversation with the angels is, of course, cut short when she realizes that there's someone standing behind her. As with the other post-resurrection disciples, other resurrection appearances to other disciples, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus immediately. He hasn't just been resuscitated as Lazarus was. He's been transformed, glorified. There's something different about this risen Jesus from the man Mary had known just a few days earlier. And so we come to one of the most beautiful encounters in the entire Bible. Jesus asks the same question as the angels, but then he narrows it down further. Not only why are you crying, but who are you looking for? Mary is still caught up in her misconceptions and she's just desperate to find Jesus' body. So Jesus calls Mary by her name and that makes all the difference. It's a powerful thing, isn't it, a name? Have you ever plowed through the lists of names in the Old Testament, the lists of fathers and sons who begat who? Begat who? Or the genealogies that come at the start of Matthew's or Luke's Gospels? And as you re read those lists of names, I wonder if, like me, you've sometimes wondered why long lists of unpronounceable names are part of the Bible, the revealed word of God. Have you too ever just skipped over them, hoping to get to the next bit of action? But the answer is here. Our God is a personal God. He's described many times in the Bible as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Well, here, he's the God of Mary. Jesus said earlier in John's gospel that he is the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, I have called you by name, you are mine. Our God is not distant and detached and above us. Our God is the incarnate God who longs to know each of us intimately, who calls each one of us by name. And so it's when he calls Mary by her name that she recognizes him. 
And this leads us to the part of the passage which puzzled me most as I was reading it. Mary, quite understandably, runs to embrace Jesus, but he tells her not to cling to him. This seems particularly unfair, given that just a week later, doubting Thomas would be invited to put his fingers into Jesus' wounds to check it's really him. If this were Hollywood, this would be the moment for a soft focus shot of joyous reunion between Mary and Jesus. But it's not Hollywood. It's reality. Jesus knows that their relationship is quite different now, just as he is different. Soon he will have ascended and Mary will know him through the Spirit rather than in the flesh. So Mary needs to change her expectations of this relationship. She mustn't cling to the earthly Jesus, the embodied Jesus, whom she's come to know and love so well. She must be ready to know him in a new way through the Spirit and to serve him in a new way too. Her role is no longer to sit at Jesus' feet or to look after his bodily needs. Her role now is to tell others about him, starting with the rest of the disciples. And here we have one last glimpse in this passage of the seismic changes which have occurred. Everywhere else in John's Gospel, when Jesus refers to God as the Father, it is as my Father or as the Father. Now Jesus refers to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. The work of reconciliation is done. Jesus has renewed the relationship between God and humanity so that we can all now call God our Father. This is good news and amazing news, and Mary is the first one tasked with going out to tell others. And from there, the ripples go out through history to each one of us sitting here now. So to return to the question I was given at the start of this sermon, why was Mary crying? Well, she'd undoubtedly had a hard few days, but her tears were maybe more a sign of her misunderstandings. In his gospel, John loves to draw out a theme by setting the misconceptions of ordinary people against the reality of Jesus. Think of Nicodemus and his confusion around being born again, or the Samaritan woman at the well and the nature of living water, or the woman caught in adultery when Jesus wrote in the dust. In each of these stories, the people concerned thought they understood something really deeply, but Jesus completely turned it on its head for them. Mary had reduced Jesus to an earthly body. Even in the face of the angels, she clung to her certainty that what she was looking for was a body. Even after he'd said her name and she'd recognized him, she tried to cling to his body. But Jesus had broken through those limits. It was time for something new. Jesus' second question, who are you looking for, has a much bigger answer than Mary had realized, and she was only just starting to grasp the limitless implications of this. Many of you may know the story of David Ray Wilkerson. He was the pastor of a small church in Pennsylvania when, in 1958, he saw a magazine photograph of seven teenagers who were members of a New York gang he felt the Holy Spirit calling to him to go and preach to those teenagers. So he traveled to New York and went to the courthouse where they were being tried. But he asked the judge for permission to speak to the boys, but the judge refused him and had him forcibly ejected from the courtroom. As he was leaving, a journalist 
took a photograph of him, which he was published in a newspaper where it was wrongly suggested that he was himself part of a gang. But it was this misunderstanding which caused other gang members on the streets of New York to welcome him and trust him, and so enabled him to establish a street ministry with young addicts and gang members, which lasted for decades. How easy it would have been for David Ray Wilkerson to stay comfortably at home in Pennsylvania, confident in the knowledge he was doing God's work by pastoring his church there. But by listening to Jesus' call, Wilkerson was called to do something so much bigger. Just like Mary at the tomb, he had to accept that he was seeing a whole new side of Jesus and that that called for a whole new response from him. I wonder where we are each clinging to the past, to what is known and familiar. My eldest child is currently in year six, which is the last year of primary school. This week, he starts his final term before he goes to secondary school. So I know all about the urge to cling to the past and to the little child that he once was. But I know really that instead, I need to look ahead to all the adventures that await him in the future. For me too, as I go through my training for ordination, there's a temptation to cling to the past, to this church, to the many friends I have here. But this passage reminds me that I can't restrict Jesus to the things he has done in the past, the places I have known him in the past. Like Mary, I have to let him be as big as he really is. I have to let him take me to new places, to new adventures, trusting that he will always be with me. We all find ourselves in different places this morning. Some of us will be standing outside that tomb, weeping, crying for the things which have hurt us or hurt those we know, possibly crying for a past we wish we could return to. If that's you, please know that you are in good company. Mary and Jesus weep with you. Also, please talk to someone before you leave the building this morning. We would love to pray with you. Some of us will be at the point of screwing up the courage and our last shred of hope to look for Jesus one last time. It may only be with hindsight that we recognize the angels we meet along that path. But the good news is that Jesus calls each one of us by name too, just like he did Mary. There are many different journeys to faith, but some of us, like her, will have found that it was a time of excruciating pain and sorrow that caused us to look for Jesus and allowed us to recognize him when he called us by name. Some of us, though, are clinging to what we thought was true or important, clinging to the familiar and the comfortable, when maybe we need to release Jesus from the restrictions we have placed around him and let him be as big as he really is. The tears that some of us cry may be because we sense that our preconceptions around who Jesus is and how he works aren't really holding true, that something is keeping us back from enjoying the full riches of life with Christ. Instead of clinging on to who you have known Jesus to be or where you have seen him at work in the past, like David Wilkerson, do you need to listen afresh for what he's saying to you now. 
Just as there was a clash of worldviews between Mary's view of the empty tomb as a place of despair and the angel's view of it as a place of triumph, are we failing to recognize where our worldview is at odds with God's? So let's cry the tears we need to cry and be honest about them. Mary and Jesus and countless of others show that there is no shame in that. But let's also be honest about Jesus' other question and think about who it is we're really looking for. Are we looking for someone who comforts us and makes us feel good on a Sunday morning? Someone who confirms the choices we've already made and reassures us that it will all turn out well in the end? Or are we actually looking for the triumphant, risen, ascended Christ who was there at creation, humbled himself to come to earth and live with us, inaugurated his kingdom and then defeated death, the one who has reconciled us with God so that we can say with confidence, our Father. That's quite someone to be looking for. And it's a whole lot more than just a Sunday morning feel-good. He is bigger than our human perspectives can ever fully comprehend. We can't limit him to the comfortable or the familiar or expect him to play by our rules. And when we try, we just end up shortchanged and ultimately disappointed. Mary couldn't join in fully with Jesus' new creation while she clung to who she had known him to be in the past, and the same is true for us. David Wilkerson would never have experienced Jesus so intimately if he'd stayed leading his church in Pennsylvania instead of following the Spirit's call to New York. Hard as it is, we need to be prepared to step out of our comfort zones and follow Jesus wherever he may lead us. Now, for most of us, that call will not take us to new cities to minister amongst gang members. It may just take us down the street to someone who needs our love and care, or to a new job, or to volunteer our time in a new way, or to rebuild a relationship. But countless people throughout history show that if we can just bring ourselves to listen, Jesus will call us on new adventures, and so to know him in ever deeper ways. This week then, I pray all of us would look for where Jesus is at work in our lives, in our families, in our communities, Instead of presuming that we understand, presuming that we can predict where God will move, let's heed the lesson of John's gospel and remember that we can learn the most when we open ourselves to see how far our understanding is from God's truth. As individuals and as a community then, let's listen anew for what God is saying to us through his word and where Jesus is leading us through his spirit. And like Mary, let's be brave enough to reconsider our assumptions and follow the risen Jesus, however he may come to us and wherever he may lead us. Amen.